so before I begin, I want to talk about a very popular book that came out in the year 2001. I'm going to talk a lot of, I'm going to, I'm going to criticize this book. But before I do, I want to tell you it's an excellent book. It's a really good book. A lot of you should probably read it. A lot of you have probably read the book, but I'm going to find an area of the book and I'm going to critique it. But first, I'm going to tell you it's a great book. And the book is called From Good to Great. It's by Jim Collins. He wrote the book in 2001. It's an excellent book on leadership. In fact, a lot of people have read it. A lot of business leaders have read it. And the whole idea of the book is how do you go from a good company to a great company? So Jim did a lot of research on what makes a company great and what are the characteristics of it. And one of the things that he drills down deep on is on leadership. And so he brings up the fact you have to have really good leadership. And I think we would all agree with that. You need a good leadership team. So a big part of this book focuses on this sentence that he has or this, this term that he has that says, you've got to get the right people on the bus. The bus referring to his leadership team. It's all about who's on the bus and who do you get off the bus? Because his idea is that you don't know where this bus is going, so you better make sure the people on your leadership team are prepared that when you go down the road and there's an obstacle or there's an unforeseen circumstance, that your leadership team has a capacity to deal with change and help you make the right decisions. Great idea. I think all of us would think that's smart. You do have to have a good leadership team. But the problem comes because a lot of church leaders started to read this book and a lot of ministry leaders started to read this book. And again, I read it as well. I think there's a lot of really good leadership principles that churches can understand. But where the book begins to break down is the idea that there are two classes of people. You have good people and you have great people. And there's a strategy, get from good to great. Oftentimes, that culture is woven into our churches, and it's woven into the American society that you have some good people and you have some great people, and how do you get from one stage to the next? Now, I like the book because I think it does have a lot of good ideas, but where you see the breakdown is that Jesus never picked people based on who was good enough that he could make them greater. Jesus never picked people based on your reputation or based on the qualities that you have and say, you know what, I see some potential in you, so I'm going to let you on the bus with me. In fact, when you look at who Jesus picked for his disciples, he really didn't care about a person's capability or potential. He really doesn't seem like he even cared what kind of sins that they were involved in because Jesus had such confidence in his own ability that it really didn't matter who was on the bus because he knew when you were in proximity to him, your life would begin to change radically. See, Jesus was never worried about taking people from good to great. He was worried about taking people from being dead to making them be alive. Jesus was looking for people who were broken, so broken that they're almost dead. Jesus was looking for people who needed mercy to give them grace. He was looking for people that needed restoration. In fact, everybody who came into contact with Jesus needed healing, and they needed restoration. See, your qualification to follow Jesus or to be on the bus with Jesus was simply, you had a need. And unfortunately, I think throughout our American culture, we kind of live in this culture of from good to great. And a lot of people don't think they're really good enough that they could ever be great. They sometimes wonder, are my spiritual gifts even enough to make me even successful? I think a lot of people in our country live with this low-grade fever that we're inadequate. 
and there's nothing that I can do to rise above my inadequacy. We kind of live in a culture that often says, your value is in what you can produce or what you can achieve. And many people look at their life and think, I haven't produced much. I haven't achieved much. And they therefore think they don't have much value. That wasn't the way Jesus intended it to be. That wasn't the way a person's value would be determined based on what you can achieve or based on what your performance is. See, today I want to talk about dealing with your past because there are times in your life that there are some serious obstacles that you are dealing with and the only way that you can get set free from them is to start dealing with some things in your past. Dealing with your past is hard. That's why we're talking about it because a lot of times we like to avoid it. And I think one thing happens with us that are a little bit older is we think, oh, you deal with your past when you're a younger person. But the truth is, the older you get, the more past that you actually have to deal with. So your opportunity to deal with your past actually grows as you get older. I think that surprised me a few years ago when the God pulled me aside and said, you need to reconcile some things in your past. I thought, well, I'm old. I haven't, I've done that before. Well, no, the older you get, the more past that you have to deal with. So I want to talk about dealing with your past, and I want to talk about it in context of looking at Matthew 9 to see what qualities did Jesus look for in people that he selected. I'm going to read to you Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. It says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher hang out with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifice. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are a sinner. See, this is a very interesting story because technically speaking, the Pharisees were right. The Pharisees are the antagonists in the story and they are saying, look, all those people around the table with Jesus, they're unclean and they were exactly right. According to the Old Testament law, the people at the table with Jesus were unclean and therefore, since they were in close proximity to clean people, Everyone was now unclean. But what the Pharisees didn't understand is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring healing to the people. He came to bring restoration to the people. And Jesus began to introduce a new concept. That sin would not influence Jesus, but Jesus would have a greater influence over sin. So suddenly the people in the room realized that their relationship with God had nothing to do with their performance. Instead, their relationship with God was 100% because of the relationship with Jesus. No longer was behavior a determining factor on the success of a person going from good to great. What was determining a person's success was the relationship with Jesus. The Pharisees were so used to, if you wanted to have a good relationship with God, it had to be strict adherence to the law. 
And suddenly, why are all these people that they call scum of the earth, why are they with Jesus? Because Jesus was bringing healing and grace to people. The people that Jesus would turn and make them part of his leadership team were actually the people that the Pharisees looked at and said, they are not even obedient to the Old Testament law. Because suddenly, the law didn't matter. Obedience didn't matter. Your behavior didn't matter. It was your relationship with Jesus that mattered. And because of your relationship with Jesus, he changes your heart and he changes your desire and suddenly your behaviors start to follow along. But no longer were the behaviors first, but it was your relationship with Jesus. So last week when I talked about this message about dealing with your past, I said all of us are, when, when we become Christians, we're talked about we're adopted into a new family. And part of living in this new family is how I'm dealing and reconciling things with your past that influenced you in a way that they're not undesirable. So we're going to continue today talking about dealing with things in your past. And I think one of the things people often say is, how do I know if things in the past are influencing me today? How do I know if there are some things in my life that I need to take a look at? And now that is a hard question. I mean, first of all, we can be grateful that we do have the Holy Spirit leading us, revealing to us if there are areas in our life. But just for uh, ease sake, I made a list of three common things that can easily be a signal that you need to reconcile some things in your past. The first thing that you can often tell if you have something of your past controlling you is reactions. Monitor your reactions. Have you ever been in a room with a group of people and suddenly something simple happens but one person way overreacts? Somebody can drop a pencil and somebody will kind of scream like what happened? It's a little overacting. I like what Bessel van der Kluck says. He is a trauma expert out of Europe, the Netherlands. He said trauma comes back as a reaction, not a memory. Trauma comes back as a reaction, not a memory. I think that is such a brilliant statement. I think you think about that, you're like, that is exactly true. Every time, Greg said every time, so I got a second there. I mean, it is so true that your trauma comes back to you as a reaction, not a memory. Sometimes you say, that doesn't influence me anymore. I don't even think about that event. But sometimes you're reacting. Sometimes when your reactions are a lot bigger than what's happening, it can be a good sign that there's something in your past influencing you. The second thing is to look at your behavior. Do you have behavior that's unwanted, but you continue to do it? Do you find yourself wrestling with unwanted behavior? No matter how hard you try, no matter how much work effort you put into it, you find yourself doing the things that you don't want to do. Sometimes that can be a good indication that there's something in your past that has way too much influence over you today. And the final thing is trauma. Some people have experienced trauma that influences them today. I think a lot of people wonder, what's the difference between trauma and just going through something very difficult? A lot of experts will say the difference between, if a person goes through a really challenging situation, what turns it into a trauma and what turns it just into a distant memory, is trauma usually happens when people go through something alone. Or they go through an event and they don't have anybody to process it with. They don't have anybody to talk to. That's why sometimes little kids get traumatized easily because they don't have the words to articulate or they might not have people to express it to. Or we talk about kids that are younger people, even kids in middle school or high school. You don't have people that you can process with. 
And sometimes in, uh, a sign of trauma is, number one, the person resists positive change. Some people who are so traumatized that have a hard time ever being truly happy or celebrating because they have experienced so much guilt that they don't ever think that they're qualified to ever experience something that's happy. Second sign of trauma is that the person thinks they have it, they have a need to plan every single thing. They feel like they need to be in control at all times. Planning's not bad. A lot of us have personality types that we like to plan, but you have your experience of people that over plan. And if something doesn't go their way, it just throws them off. The final thing is of trauma sign is a person fears failure more than anything. And when you experience so much failure, it, the thing it stifles most is your creativity. Because you get scared to try to do anything because what if you fail? See, someone once said, you cannot change your past, but you can change how it influences you today. And some of that is going to take processing that emotion or processing that past with Jesus. But I think bottom line is that your uh, invitation to deal with your past is more of an invitation to get really curious. To get to really curious of why your past has so much influence over you today. And I'm sure there's some of you listening to me, some of you online, you're like, I, I really don't really need this message so much. I'm doing pretty good. I don't feel like there's anything in my past that's influencing me today. And that's great, and I understand that. But see, we also need to be the community of people or other people that are dealing with their past feel comfortable to be part of. That that is a big part of the church, is to be a community that we can listen to other people talk about their past. So as some of you know, when I prepare my messages, I spend a lot of time verbal processing my messages to Becky. I have a little, I, I don't process well quietly. So usually I do my message, I'm always bouncing it off Becky, and she's always listening and listening and offering advice. And then this week, I'm like, Becky, that's so good, you need to share it. That's a little bit more of your story, not mine. And I got her to say yes. So Becky's going to come up for a little while and share her part of this message. So thanks, Beck. Okay, thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. So uh, what Jack and I were processing earlier this week about this message happened on a day when um, I woke up with a song going on in my mind that particular morning. This particular song was very unexpected because it was a children's song from a Blue's Clues episode that we grew up with. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Blue's Clues, it's a, it's a preschool show that happened to be one of Nick's favorites. It's been playing in some form or other in our house for 24 years. Um, but it's an excellent, it, yeah, you, yeah, you get that. So it's an excellent show. Um, and what, what's part of the premise of what they do is they take some principle that they're trying to teach to the preschooler um, with Steve, who's the host, and his little blue dog named Blue, who's a cartoon dog, and then they reinforce it several times, and oftentimes there's a jingle that they'll sing that's specific to that particular episode. So the song that I woke up with this particular morning was, uh, was a song that went with an episode where they're tr we're trying to teach preschoolers what to do if you lose something 
And the, what, what I woke up with was hearing Steve saying, if you lose something, go back, go back, go back, go back to where you were. And that, and that was what I woke up to. And I knew somewhere in my spirit that there was something going on there that the Lord was trying to say to me. Because then as Jack and I began processing it, we began realizing it's when you go back, it's not always just about maybe reconciling or processing something. It's because you've lost something. It's because something of yourself has been left behind you. And, and, and that is where, uh, that's, where I, that's why I thought I, I woke up with that particular song in mind. So, um, you know, this is something that David knew a lot. I, 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 I found this psalm that he wrote, Psalm 3112, that says, and I'll say this, that sometimes you, this is where we can become broken, where pieces of ourselves are left behind in our past. And David felt that way. He said in Psalm 31:12, I am totally forgotten, buried away like a dead man, discarded like a broken dish thrown into the trash. And I think David was feeling that, and we can feel that too, where pieces of ourselves have been left behind and we've been left broken. And like Jack said, some of us so broken that we're almost dead. And it got me thinking about something that is really beautiful uh, about brokenness, and it is a Japanese art form called kintsugi. Oh, look, Donna's doing a, a kintsugi dance over there. And what kintsugi is that the Japanese have created is when they take a broken dish, something that had value, some piece of pottery or whatever, and it has become broken. And then they take um, a lacquer and then they put either gold or silver or platinum, mix it in there, and they put the dish back together using that to, to mend the cracks. And I believe that that was a picture of what God likes to do for us. That, and, and when they're done with this, it, not only is it what it was before, but it's far better because now you have that beautiful and precious metal that is holding together those pieces. It becomes an art form that it simply wasn't before it was broken. And to me, this is like what the Lord tries to do for us. When we, um, when we bring pieces of our, see, when we go back into our past and pull pieces of ourselves, he's not expecting us to mend it together or even, as you were saying, Leslie, to sew it together. He's, bringing, he's asking us to come and offer him those bro broken pieces. And what he is able to do in mending that together causes us to, uh, to be far more even beautiful than we were before we were broken, just like kintsugi. Another thing that happens with kintsugi is that when you hold it up to the light, the light reflects through those broken cracks, through, through the gold and the silver and the platinum, and there is this beautiful light that shines through that simply wasn't there before it was mended. And I, it, it just reminded me of what Jesus of, of Jesus shining through our broken cracks and what we become to the world, something beautiful, something to see, something to behold. And, 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 and the light of Jesus is shining through those things that were once cracked and broken and we felt like should be discarded in the trash. And so that to me, that's just a picture. So that leaves us with the question of, well, how do we lose pieces of ourselves in the past? 
and Jack and I began talking about this. And I, I came up with a list of four things. Now these things, this is not by any means an exhaustive list whatsoever. We can lose pieces of ourselves in many ways. But I do want to highlight just four quick things for us today of ways that we can lose pieces of ourselves that we may need to go back and try to find those things. The very first thing that came to my mind was, uh, was sexual sin. The reason why this is so, so important for us um, and the reason why God really does care who we sleep with is because it's not just because he's keeping score on sex and trying to, you know, uh, that it's not that at all. It's because he understands and we need to understand why God created sex. God created sex uh, not just for procreation or for recreation. He created it to be covenantal. He created it to cause two people to become one. And so when we have sexual encounters with people other than our spouse, whether or not we want it, there is part of ourselves we will leave with that person because a oneness has occurred. It's a spiritual principle that no condom can keep you from. Condoms can keep you from STDs, birth control can keep you from unwanted pregnancies, but nothing can keep you from unwanted oneness with the person that you've just had sex with. You might not even know their name, but you've left part of yourself behind when you walk away from that, from that relationship. And so uh, I don't want to go too much into that because Jack last year preached a beautiful message, probably the clearest message. It creates a soul tie is what it's called. And Jack uh, preached a beautiful message on this last year. So important is this message that I put it on the homepage of our website, and it's called Let's Have the Talk. So for any of you or you online who may be interested in learning more about why this principle works and what you can do about it, I suggest that you go to the homepage of lakeeffect.church and scroll down and listen to that message. It is worth your time. And he explains it in far more detail. But that's one way that we can lose part of ourselves in our past. Another way is through, uh, through trauma. Now, Jack's already talked a little bit about that this morning, so I don't want to go uh, too much into that other than to reiterate that we know we might have trauma through our reactions and our behaviors. And... Um, when we have a trauma that's in our lives, it's not unusual for us to leave a piece of ourselves in that trauma. I, I personally think that that's why PTSD is a thing, why it comes back so quickly, why when we are experiencing PTSD, it's because part of us is still back in whatever that was that we experienced back here. And see, God's got a way for us to begin to heal from that. And that's really only done in community um, I, or through somebody who really knows how to pray through trauma. And I don't think it's a once-and-done deal, by the way. I think this is something, even as Leslie was saying, you know, you have to grieve and go through this process, and it's uncomfortable, but it's so important for moving forward. Because if par too many parts of ourselves are left back here, we really can't move forward as much as we should be able to. So, um, so yeah, trauma is another way. And Jack and I actually talk about different kinds of trauma. We have the big T traumas in our life. I think that I've shared with you all before that I experienced a rape at one point of my life. That's a big T trauma. But we also have a lot of little T traumas and that's just ongoing things that just cause us uh, almost on daily or consistent basis. It, they can accumulate. Those are also traumas that need to be uh, taken care of. 
I know that I have a few in my life, and sometimes I can react. Um, a lot of those are, 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 are tangled up with our son, Nick, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But anyway, processing this, again, is usually not something that is best done alone. It's usually something best done in community or with people that can pray or even with professional counseling. I, I don't want to discount the value of that at all. And a third way that we can often experience leaving ourselves behind is unforgiveness. And this is huge, and I know this is a, this is a, a real sore spot with a lot of people, especially if you've tried and you've tried and you've tried to forgive. But I just want you to have the picture of this, that when you're, when you're operating in unforgiveness and you're holding something against someone, part of yourself has to stand there and hold it against that person, and you can't move forward. Part of yourself is still back here, and you've lost that. So even in trying to move forward, if you're still holding that against somebody, that's the way that works. So if you have experienced unforgiveness in your life and you've tried before, I'm, I'm just going to say, go take it back to the Lord and try again. Again, this is like trauma. You need to be able to have community that's going to help you to, um, to move through that and past it and regain that part of yourself so that you can truly move forward and allow that to be part of the broken piece that God puts back together to make you really whole and beautiful once again. So this being willing to go back is really an interesting thing. I want to share one, um, one little illustration of that from my own life. When, when our son Nick was diagnosed with severe autism, Jack and I became, we were living in Colorado at the time, Jack and I became aware of this, of this program that was being run through the University of Colorado at Denver. They had a department called the JFK Center for De Developmental Disabilities. How could I ever forget? Because we spent so much time there. And we were able to get Nick in this program. Because of that, Nick was, had a, uh, had access to a lot of testing and diagnostic, um, different pieces of equipment and evaluations he could go through that would typically cost a parent thousands of dollars, but we were able to get him for free because he was part of this research project. So we were forever carting him back and forth up to Denver about an hour away from us. And, and it was fun for him because it was play-based and he was able to just do what he normally did and people would just observe him. These, 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 these researchers and these researchers in training just observed him. A little tougher on me and Jack because we were the ones who had to fill out all the forms and begin realizing how really much of a deficit we were looking at with Nick. And then what made it even worse and what made it even more traumatic for me every time we went back is we would go back and go through it again and we would get this very detailed report. This was a research, so you know, you get it all detailed and all scientific and Nick hadn't changed. Year over year over year, we weren't seeing the developmental milestones that we were looking for. And I, I really grew to hate it. I really grew to say, I don't even want to look at that report. I'm already aware of what it says. I, I, don't want to, I don't even want to see it. So I was real glad when Jack and I moved from Colorado to Florida to think, I'm done with that. I don't have to go back and get those reports that tell me what I already know about my own kid because it was too hard for me to bear. But about two years after we moved to Florida, I went back for a family reunion. And because we had made a commitment to this research project, I realized I was going to have to take Nick in one last time for them to do one further evaluation. So I did, and I took him in, and I filled out all the papers, knew what the papers were going to say. 
I watched him from a, a glass, a mirrored glass, go through this evaluation. I thought, okay, he's seven now, not a whole lot different than when he was two. We're going to get the same report. And so I gathered Nick up, and we were going to leave. And the researcher, the head researcher, she pulled me aside, and she said, I want to tell you something about Nick that doesn't show up on this paper. She said, because this, the scope of our research is only looks at developmental milestones. So I'm not, I'm not able to put this on this paper. But, this, but, but I have noticed something about Nick that's intuitive that is not showing up on that paper. And that's something called social reciprocity. I learned a big word that day. And what social reciprocity means is it's an intuitive part of your brain that either you have or you don't have. Some people just don't have it. And that is that the ability to look at someone, to tell by the tone of their voice, the posture of their body, the, the gestures they're making, what mood they're in, and then be able to match your own mood with that. So if I'm standing here like this and Trey comes in, Trey knows immediately, uh-oh, something's wrong, because his social reciprocity is working. And if I see a little puppy and, oh my gosh, I just got to pick that thing up, you know, People know how I'm feeling about that. Well, with somebody with autism, that's generally completely missing. They, they can't read that. And people can learn. People can learn how to look at signs, but it's always like speaking a foreign language. They're going to have to think through a lot of rules in order to try to figure out what somebody's feeling. But for Nick, I learned that day that the intuitive part of his brain was working, and I never knew it. And because I was willing to go back into a pretty traumatic situation, I was able to gain a different perspective. It didn't show up because that's not what they were testing for. So it never showed up. But I was able to, to learn something. She was kind enough to give me a different perspective. And sometimes I think when we go back to gain pieces of ourself that has been lost, that's what God does. He brings a completely different perspective to us that maybe we didn't have before. That's something really important for us to know as we move forward. And the fourth thing that, uh, that I wanted to bring out was something that got really highlighted to me this week, and that is when we lose a piece of gratitude. See, not everything that we need to go back and revisit is negative. Sometimes we need to go back and revisit victories that happened in our lives and remember that God did something for us. Because as we move along life, sometimes even those victories get dulled and we forget. And it's, it's equally important to not just have this be a negative experience, but also have it be a positive experience. This week I had the opportunity to... Um, to sit with Lori's Weir for a moment, and we, um, she is working uh, on this, on learning this new form of, well, it's not new, but new, new to you, form of, of ministry in, through prophetic heart healing. And what the premise of this is, is you sit down and you ask the Lord uh, to bring back a memory where you really felt joyful, where you really felt something good happened, and then the whole session moves on from there. And in this particular session that I had, it was actually the day before I woke up and learned, go back, go back, go back, go back to where you were. <laughs> Steve never missed the cue like I just did. Anyway, uh, in that session, the Lord just brought back to my mind, again, this was about Nick, the first time that Nick said the word shoe. Now, he was already about four years old, 
And Jack and I had begged, literally begged God for years to let him speak one word. And we had nothing year after year with Nick. But one day when I was getting him dressed, I held up the shoe, and I had, and I had done this. And I said, look, Nick, it's a shoe. And I had done that for years. And one day he looked back and he said, shoe. And I'm going to tell you what, Jack and I, I yelled and screamed so loud it probably scared Nick, but Jack and I threw a party. We literally threw a first word party because Nick said the word shoe. And I remembered in that moment how God answered prayer and the victory we felt at that moment. I hadn't felt that kind of victory over Nick in years. But because I sat with Lori and went through this, the victory of that moment, God brought it flooding back to me. And this is what the Lord said during that time to me that I felt. He said, I've always had Nick in my hand. In fact, it was God who gave Nicholas his name. I had a dream a year before I met Nick, uh, Jack that I was going to have a son, and his name was going to be Nicholas because Nicholas means overcomer. And so... God reminded me this week through that that um, he's always had Nick in his hand. There have always been victory. And it's equally important for us to remember the victory in those times when we are feeling like it's all going south. It's all wrong. Everything is wrong. God isn't answering prayer. Oh, yes, he is. And he's answered plenty of it before. I just need to remember it. I need to go back and grab that piece that was lost and bring it back into my current experience that I'm having and allow God to fit that lost piece of joy back into my, the kintsugi he's making of my life. By the way, Lori needs about seven more uh, sessions in order to complete her internship. If any of you want to do this, I recommend that you get in touch with Lori Zwier. It's really, it's really a good thing. So, you know, back at the beginning, I, re I read David, King David, when he said in uh, Psalm 31, 12, I am totally forgotten, buried away like a dead man, discarded like a broken dish thrown in the trash but he goes through a transformation. And only seven verses later, by the way, there's a typo in your, in your uh, notes. It should be Psalm 31, not Psalm 21. But only seven verses later, David writes this. Lord, how wonderful you are. You have stored up so many good things for us, like a treasure chest heaped up and spilling over with blessings, all for those who honor and worship you. Everyone knows what you can do for those who turn and hide themselves in you. And I believe, again, this is a picture of that kintsugi. Everyone knows it. Everyone can see. We are allowing the, the light of the Lord to shine through those broken places, and it's really making a beautiful statement, not just for us living in, we call this message broken wholeness. That's what it means. We're whole through these broken pieces but it's also allowing the light of Jesus to shine through. So if you remember nothing from what I say here, I will leave you with this. When you lose something, go back, go back, go back, go back to where you were.
preach, and I'm going to sit down because that was amazing. So thank you. I, I just want to kind of close today. That was so good. Thank you. That is such some fun memories, and I appreciate that so much. Wow. You know, I started in the message and talking about in the book of Matthew when Jesus is sitting down at the table of sinners. And the Pharisees are all assuming that Jesus is going to become unclean because he's sitting with the sinners. In fact, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Instead of Jesus oh, being infected, Jesus is bringing healing to the people that are at the table with him. And it's so powerful that this week I, I learned something that shouldn't be that big of a surprise for me, but that um, the word hospitality... Oh, there, there it is. Okay, there it is. I'm like, I can't hear myself. Verbal processors like to hear themselves all the time. All right, there's what's going on. There we go. All right, there, much better. So I learned this week, and this should not really be that big of a surprise, but the word hospital comes from the same Latin word as the word hospitality. I mean, they really do sound similar, so I don't know why that was big news for me this week, but that was my big news this week of the words have similar meaning. And it shouldn't surprise me that, you know, a hospital can literally be interpreted as a place where people who suffer come to be cared for. And that is what Christian community is all about. A place for people that suffer can find a place to find love and acceptance. It's a place where they can come to the table and be with Jesus and find out no matter what they're dealing with, they can be honest with Jesus. That Jesus welcomes us to put anything on the table. That there wasn't this standard of expectation that the Pharisees had, that you had to have everything figured out. I love this quote by Sky Jatani. He says, When we are loved and accepted for who we really are and welcomed into the life of another person without condition, it brings healing to our soul. That is what Jesus did by sharing his table with sinners. And that's what his table still does when the church welcomes the imperfect, even scandalous people to it. See, not only are we called to deal with our past, but we are called to be a community where people who are dealing with their past feel loved and accepted and welcomed. That people would feel compassion when they come. I love a book by Jay Stringer. It's called Unwanted. It's about unwanted sexual behavior. I think it's probably one of the best books on unwanted behavior. And he says in this book, so often when we are looking at our unwanted behavior, we are so busy judging it that we never come around to dealing with it. And I think sometimes we can do that with other people. We can be so judgmental that we never take the time to really listen to them. Because behind all unwanted behavior, behind all unwanted reactions, is usually a person that had experienced something that was very difficult. And that's what we get to be as a community, the people who love people without condition. I like to refer to our community as a grove, and I think we've been talking about that more and more, because I think a grove is such a good visual illustration of what a church is supposed to be. You might remember a few weeks ago in my message, I talked about how the biggest and the strongest trees, the redwoods and the sequoia, the reason that they can grow up to 400 feet is because they grow in groves. 
because their roots are intermingled together so they strengthen and support another tree. When one tree gets sick, the other tree brings support to it. When one tree is stuck in the wind that might blow it over, the other trees help hold it up. Redwood trees and sequoia trees do not grow tall in isolation. They only grow 400 feet when they're in a grove together. And that's what we get to be as a community. So as I close this message, I want to encourage you, encourage you as, uh, as Leslie open to, to seek the Lord. Is there something in your past he's asking you to deal with? And, and find the time to begin even grieving about it. And if maybe you don't have that in your life, maybe you're not dealing with the issue of the past, how are we becoming a grove that other people would feel loved and accepted to be part of? So let me close this quote with a, this message with another quote by Sky Jathani, which I think is perfect. It said, at, it's at Christ's table, as we gather to remember his wounds, that we discover ours are welcomed as well. Our wounds are welcomed as well. As Christ shows us his wounds and what he suffered for us, it's an, always an invitation to bring our wounds to him for healing and restoration. So God, I do thank you for today, and I thank you, Lord, for being here in a very powerful way. God, I thank you for even in the prayer room, what you put on Leslie's heart, Lord, to begin this message with, Lord, is encouraging to me because I know that you are here and you are speaking really loudly to us in this room or online or who will listen later in this week, that you are a God who wants to help us reconcile our past. That you are a God who wants to heal our yesterdays as well as our todays and our tomorrows. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. So God, I thank you that we have comfort knowing that we can come to the table at any time and sit with you and be open and honest and transparent. And you say to us, I'll bring you healing. God, I thank you that you offer us healing and mercy. And may we leave here today and go through this week with the confidence to know that you are there to bring healing and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.